morning. Judge Koh, Judge Desai, and I all welcome you to the Ninth Circuit. We have three cases for argument today, uh, but before we get to the argued cases, we have a number of cases that will be submitted on the briefs, and I will do that now. Uh, United States versus Ehrman, United States versus Galloway, Madera Group versus Mitsu Tsutamoto Insurance USA, Best Auto Repair versus Travelers Casualty Insurance Company will all be submitted as of this day. The first case for argument is Coalition uh, on Homelessness versus the City and County of San Francisco. Just so the parties are aware, after we hear argument in this case, we plan on taking a very short recess. Council, whenever you're ready. Good morning, Your Honors. May it please the court. Uh, Deputy City Attorney Wayne Snodgrass on behalf of appellants. And with me are the City Attorney David Chu, Chief Deputy Yvonne Murray, and Deputy City Attorney Tara Steely. We need only look out the windows of this courthouse to see up close the dismal conditions that are now present on many of San Francisco's sidewalks as tents and encampments have sprung up and multiplied. This is a crisis, and it's one that San Francisco expends enormous re resources to address. The city's Department of Housing and Su Homelessness and Supportive Housing in the most recent fiscal year had a budget of $672 million. Each year, San Francisco engages, shelters, and houses thousands of persons experiencing homelessness, and San Francisco voters have enacted special taxes to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars per year to help fund the services that the city provides to persons experiencing homelessness. And the city has made significant strides in tackling the problem. From 2019 to 22, uh, San Francisco increased the number of shelter beds by almost 1,000 and the number of supportive housing beds by more than 1,500. The district court's hearing on the motion to enforce still set for tomorrow? That is and correct. You... Uh, yes, it is, Your Honor. And did, did you request a continuance so this court could weigh in or not on the issues? We have not requested a continuance. The uh, hearing had earlier been scheduled for, I believe it was the 10th of August, but it was the district court, uh, sua sponte, that continued it to the day at to tomorrow. As, uh, excuse me. Um, as part of its efforts to get people off the streets and into shelters and supportive housing, San Francisco needs to be able to use all of the tools that state and local legislators and the voters acting by initiative have enacted, including laws that restrict the use of public rights of way for camping, lying, or sleeping. These laws are necessary to encourage persons who receive offers of shelter to accept them and to help ensure that when an individual experiencing homelessness accepts a shelter offer, they actually use it rather than continuing to live in an encampment. So let's address your, your, your motion to modify the injunction pending appeal. So my understanding is you, you're unclear on the definition of what involuntary homelessness means in the injunction? That's one of the issues that we have with the injunction, absolutely. So what's the unclarity? I mean, none of our cases have said that involuntary homelessness includes those that are offered shelter. So what, why is that at issue? Well, the district court... Um, the district court did not define the term, despite our request that the district court do so. 
Uh, and the district court spoke of a formula which it drew from this court's decisions in Martin and Grant's Pass, i.e., the, diff- the numerical difference between the number of right. individuals experiencing but, but, but homelessness and beds. But those two cases beds. did define involuntary homelessness, and so why wouldn't the district court apolo- uh, follow those definitions? It wasn't clear to us. It wasn't clear whether the district court follows that definition or not. And, in fact, at the uh, hearing on the preliminary injunction motion, the court said that, that something to the effect that the Ninth Circuit is telling me I have to follow the formula. And we, the city had raised the fact that, that... That formula language was stricken from Grants Pass. That so. is correct. And that the fact that it has been stricken... Um, in our view, is um, a strong indicia that there is legal error underlying the preliminary injunction. Well, I just don't know if the formula has anything to do with the definition of uh, involuntary homelessness. We've said very clearly if you have access to housing or temporary shelter, you're not involuntarily homeless. So I don't see anything that would preclude San Francisco from enforcing its, its, its laws as written. We, we agree that that is the definition that should apply, but again, the district court um, declined our efforts to have that term addressed. Notwithstanding um, the district court's um, declination of your request for clarification, I'm, I'm looking at the language in the injunction, so this is at ER 49, and what I read is a, this is the last full sentence before the delineation of the specific ordinances, and there's no mention of the formula that you're talking about. And to Judge Bumate's point, um, the term that's used is involuntary homeless. The, that is the language that's used in the district court injunction, and that term is defined by our court's cases in Martin and in Johnson. The district court uh, used only the formula and did not address the question of how, how, how an individual experiencing homelessness is regarded with... Can with you point me to where in this language here on ER 49, which is the, is, is the language of the actual injunction, um, there is any inclusion or reliance on the formula language? Well, in that, in that section of the, uh, of the injunction, the formula comes in in terms of the endpoint that the district court put on the injunction. Uh, and so the district court stated that until that endpoint is reached, we may uh, not enforce the enumerated laws against the involuntarily homeless, without, again, without any, without any definition as to what that term encompassed. But if uh, we all agree- wasn't there evidence in the record that even if you adopt your uh, interpretation of involuntarily homeless that the records show that there were still individuals who were involuntarily homeless. And so why should we vacate this preliminary injunction? Because the uncertainty, well, there are a number of reasons that we believe the in- injunction be, should be vacated. But on this point, the problem is that the uncertainty about what the injunction means with regard to involuntarily homelessness has hampered the city and prevented the city from moving forward with enforcement of the laws in any situ- of the enumerated laws in any situation because we don't we don't want to be in violation of a federal court injunction um, and I'll just note that the appellees in their briefing uh, what part of the injunction prohibits you for example from following your pre-injunction enforcement bulletin is there any specific language that prohibits you to do that I don't think there's, there is specific language saying the city may not follow that bulletin. 
but the mm -hmm. the injunctive language the prohibition against enforcement of the enumerated laws except against the involuntarily homelessness homeless again begs that question who are those individuals if they are if they are as the district court seemed to believe from its remarks and as the appellees have sometimes urged both in this court and in the district court sometimes not if involuntarily homeless individuals means all homeless individuals in San Francisco during such time as the number of shelter beds is less than the number of uh, is, is less than the number of individuals experiencing homelessness then the city is not able to enforce those those laws but counsel, the enumerated if, if the laws district court followed anyone. that definition that would be in violation of ninth circuit precedent which clearly says involuntary homeless include doesn't include those that are offered temporary shelter and that we're asking this court to clarify that in this case the the injunction must be its term involuntarily homeless must be read must be defined consistent with the definitions in martin and in grants pass okay do you agree that in an enforcement action the city would bear the burden of showing that a shelter offer was made if there were an enforcement action um well, if, if the city, for example, were to cite, uh, were to cite a, an individual and the city believed that a, that a shelter offer had been made and, that, and there was some dispute about that, um, I, think the, I, I think it would depend where the, where the issue was raised. If, if there was a criminal proceeding in state court, um, then... I don't believe the city would face that burden. Um, I think it would depend well, upon at, the particulars. At a minimum, penal code, or I'm sorry, I guess it's police code section 169 requires that a shelter offer be made. So at a minimum in that instance, you would have to bear the burden, correct? Under, if, we, if we were to cite uh, an individual experiencing homelessness under police code 169, that is correct. Would that be an affirmative defense and an individual prosecution? How would that happen? How would that play out? Well, there's nothing in the record on this, but I do believe that that, would be, that could be raised as an affirmative defense in, a, in an individual prosecution. So the, mar the confusion in the district court as to what involuntarily homelessness means is just one of the legal errors which we believe um, under, undermines and requires vacation of the injunction. Um, another one is that the district court erroneously treated San Francisco as if it were the same as Boise and Grants Pass, which fundamentally it is not. In those... Go back one second to involuntary um, homeless individuals. Um, is an offer that requires someone to be separated from their family or to give up their pets or their belongings, is that an adequate shelter offer in our view and a first off that is that is not a question that is addressed at all by the record uh, in this case it has not been developed below and there have not you know that there's that issue is not really present in this record our view is that an adequate shelter uh, offer is shelter that um, does not for example as in as in uh, Martin infringe upon the individual's First Amendment rights uh, but I, for example, I do believe that a, an offer, I don't believe that shelters are required to accept all of the pets that belong to the individuals who live there. 
But again, these are issues that right now the injunction didn't address and the party's briefings in the district court and in this court have not addressed. And you're not asking this court to try to give some guidance on that as to how you would assess whether somebody was involuntarily homeless, are you? It seems like there would be a lot of questions subsumed within that ultimate question. Correct. We are not asking this court at this time to address the issue of what specifically constitutes an offer of adequate shelter and what does not, because the record before this court simply doesn't address that. Can I ask, so you asked for the total vacation of the preliminary injunction, but there is Martin Grants Pass, that is the law. So would an injunction that required San Francisco to follow its policies as written, would that solve all the problems? I don't believe it would, Your Honor. And so that gets me to another problem with the injunction, which is that this case and San Francisco's laws are fundamentally unlike those in the city of Boise and in Grants Pass. In those jurisdictions, each one of those jurisdictions had a flat 24-7 prohibition on sleeping in public on public property. In Martin, the ordinance prohibited sleeping in any public place. And in Grants Pass, the ordinance said no person may sleep on public sidewalks, streets, or alleys at any time. And the court held that it was a violation of the Eighth Amendment, obviously, to criminally prosecute homeless individuals for sleeping in public because as a result of those 24-7 measures, they had nowhere else to go. San Francisco is different. In San Francisco, an individual experiencing homelessness is legally allowed to sleep on the sidewalk or in a park within 20 out of the 24 hours making up the day. Between 11 p.m. and 7 a.m., police code section 168 allows sleeping on sidewalks. The prohibition contained in section 168 only applies from 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. So the real problem is just 647. You're making a geographic limitation argument, but those geographic limitations, they're not in the ordinances that have been adjoined, are they? Police code 168 is one of the adjoined ordinances. But look at the others. Okay, let's look at 168. That says from 7 to 11 p.m. you can't sit or lie on the sidewalk. Then the city argues, well, then go to a park. But the park, it's illegal to sleep in a park from 8 p.m. to 8 a.m. So there's still four hours in the day where people don't have anywhere to go. So how do you then address those four hours? Well, Your Honor, we respectfully submit that it is not cruel and unusual punishment to forbid sleeping on public property within four out of the 24 hours making up the day. In more than 80 percent of the time of a day, there are places where individuals may lawfully sleep. Penal code 647E, another of the adjoined ordinances, does not prohibit public sleeping. It prohibits lodging. And as the San Francisco pre-injunction enforcement bulletin states, the city only enforces that if the individual has a tent or some other similar structure. So I guess that's my problem. I don't understand why then we couldn't say San Francisco should enforce its police bulletin as written. Because it accounts for everything you're saying now. Correct. The only thing that would do would prevent San Francisco from enforcing 647E without offering shelter first. Correct. 
that still leaves other issues as to the injunction i'm happy to turn to those if the court would like to those i mean i'm just saying you would be happy would you be satisfied if we said that the injunction should be that san francisco should follow its laws as written well that's that is simply a follow the law injunction which legally is there obviously there's a record showing that it hasn't been so we we think that the that the we are asking the court to vacate the injunction because of various fundamental legal flaws underlying it should the court not do that then we do ask that the we ask for what we're seeking then is an order that an opinion excuse me that that clarifies a number of the issues that we have raised in voluntarily homelessness the there should be no injunction against one sixty eight and one sixty nine another issue is the prohibition against quote threats to enforce and could we talk about the threats to enforce i understand that the district court's comments at that january hearing certainly could raise your concern but if you look at the language of the injunction itself it says enjoined from threatening to enforce these specific five penal code and police code sections so why isn't that specific enough well that certainly doesn't say just standing around in your mere presence is enjoined it says you threaten to enforce these five sections the district court suggested at the in the court's remarks at the in the january hearing that the mere presence of police without you know silent presence of police could reasonably construe be construed as a threat to enforce and it was those remarks that have created this again another aspect of uncertainty that the city faces as to what it may and may not do under the injunction i agree with you that the a verbal or written threat is is what is needed not not simply a presence but the district court for example talked about at a certain enforcement action the ratio between the number of officers present and the number of residents of the encampment suggesting that there was some permissible numerical level that if it's exceeded that constitutes a threat we need to know we need to we're asking the court for clarification that a threat is a written or verbal communication not simply a silent police presence yeah the district court didn't do any balancing of the interests when considering making that statement right so it didn't consider the safety issues that would be intended if police were not around so it would be seem not to be appropriate to enforce that type of definition or threaten it's hard to say what the district court was considering at that moment it was faced with competing administrative motions from from the respective sides i have one last question your argument up until the appeal seems to have been consistently that your pre-injunction written policies required you to make a shelter offer before enforcement of any sit sleep lie laws during encampment resolutions but now you seem to be arguing oh we don't have to give a shelter offer anyway because people can move to another part of the city they can move outside the city why shouldn't we find that that new arguments waived that argument your honor is a is a pure issue of law which the court is free to to address even if it was not addressed below 
With, but, but don't we need a factual record to know whether other public spaces are in fact available? No, Your Honor, you don't, because the all you need is the text of the laws, the text specifically of 168 and the park code provision, which together allow public sleeping within 20 of the 24 hours making up the day. Um, unless there are further questions right I now, I'd like two, to reserve I'll give you some, some balance time. Of my time. I, I do have two questions. Um, one of the issues you raise is that we shouldn't uh, in, in enforce injunction while uh, during uh, resolutions, encampment resolutions, where you're cleaning up and remediating the area. Is that are you asking for uh, that 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 injunction uh, that you should be allowed to enforce these laws forever after uh, a resolution, or is that a limited in time? The resolutions are not a. Um, the resolutions don't create a permanent. Uh, no sleeping zone. They are a, they are a, an enforcement approach, an enforcement mechanism to deal with a particular problem focused in scope that the city perceives at that location. So then, after because I think your briefing said that the district court would allow you to clean, to rem, uh, to enforce the laws while you're actually cleaning the resolution area, but you're asking for uh, the ability to enforce that after cleaning is done. Is that, is that right? That is correct. But how much time are you asking for after resolution's done? Well, the, the, there, there isn't, there isn't a, a set time. Um, the, what we're asking for is the ability to use these tools, which are the enumerated laws, yeah. Uh, when presented with the, with the problems that we are facing out on the streets. In the resolution. In well, the resolution, okay. correct. Okay. And then my, my second question and, um, is, you know, you referenced that the district court's injunction uh, referenced the uh, formula from Grant's class, which was stricken, but what timing, assuming that we don't vacate the injunction totally, what timing would be appropriate then for the end of the injunction? We... Th we think that in terms of the endpoint, the injunction yeah. should have been like a standard preliminary injunction, which is while the litigation is pending in the district court, unless the injunction is modified or vacated. That's the way most preliminary injunctions read, and we think that that is the approach that should have been followed here. Okay. We'll give you a couple minutes. Good morning, and may it please the court. My name is Joseph Lee. I'm here on behalf of Plaintiff Appellees. So let me start off by uh, pointing out two, I think, important things. One is that with respect to the legal standards that the district court applied, the district court faithfully uh, applied the holdings in Martin and Johnson. In fact, it, the district court's injunction is a very straightforward application of those holdings. So, so do you agree that the city can still enforce the enjoined laws against individuals who refuse an offer of actual available shelter? Absolutely, Your Honor. If an individual is no longer involuntarily homeless because they have access to practically available shelter, then, again, consistent with Martin and Grant's past, that individual can have uh, is no longer involuntarily homeless and therefore is subject is outside the scope of the injunction which on its if face look, if you look at page 41 of the injunction the district court treats the defendant's argument regarding involuntarily homeless as sort of a novel issue and says the court need not decide whether the defendant's reading of martin and johnson is correct because their position lacks factual support that's right so 
this does make it seem as if the court is relying heavily on the formula. This whole language relies on the formula. The injunction only ends when the formula no longer applies. So there does seem to be a lot of confusion as to whether someone who declines a shelter offer is in fact involuntarily homeless. Your Honor, I would not characterize that as confusion, certainly not confusion on the part of the district court. And if you look, for example, at the court's opinion on page 36, that's the ER 37, um, you can see that the district court delineates between discussion of the formula versus discussion of what it means to be involuntarily homeless. If you look at that page, starting at line 11, the district court, again, relying upon Ninth Circuit precedent, says the Ninth Circuit made clear um, that, that its holding is narrow one regarding when a city may prosecute homeless individuals. Again, here the district court does not use the term individual, uh, involuntarily homeless for sitting, sleeping, or lying on public policy, and it, it recites essentially the formula. But then it goes on to say that the Ninth Circuit also explained that its holding does not cover individuals who do have access to adequate temporary shelter, whether because they have the means to pay for it or because it is realistically available. I understand available. That, that those quotations of Martin and Johnson are there on 36, but on 41, the district court clearly seems to think if the formula is not satisfied, I don't have to address the question of whether anyone is involuntarily homeless, and Rule 65D requires that injunctions be specific in terms, describe in reasonable detail that acts to be restrained, prevent uncertainty, prevent confusion. So how does it meet that high bar of precisely and fairly drawing notice of what the injunction actually prohibits? I think the injunction itself solves that, and I disagree with the ambiguity, but nevertheless, I think the language and injunction itself solves that issue because the injunction separately states that the defendants are enjoined from enforcing uh, the laws to prohibit involuntarily homeless individuals from sitting, lying, or sleeping on public pro- property, and then it enumerates those laws, and then separately says this preliminary injunction shall remain effective as long as there are more homeless individuals in San Francisco than there are shelter beds available. So and, what you're and saying as, is that the, the language at the end of the injunction, and I think your friend on the other side act, actually said the same thing, which is the language at the end of the injunction talks about how long the injunction shall remain in place. And what you're saying, and I think that's what the city is also um, wanting us to hold, is that the actual scope of the injunction only relates to involuntary homelessness without any connection to the formula. That's correct. And, and I think that's, in some ways, the best evidence that there's no confusion here because everybody agrees that that's how the injunction should be read, that the uh, provision regarding the quote-unquote formula is merely intended to be a sunset provision, and the, real, uh, the, the actual limitation in terms of who, whom the injunction can, uh, protects is limited to involuntarily homeless individuals. And as this court pointed out, that definition, that term involuntarily homeless individual, comes straight from the Ninth Circuit's case language and is well-defined and, in fact, has been used by this court to define not just the scope of injunction but other things, such as a class of persons. So can I ask, just to be clear, your, 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 your side believes that the San Francisco could enforce its policies as written? 
your honor there is an important caviar here for one thing there are multiple policies at this point that the city has the pre injunction enforcement bullet right well the problem with the pre injunction force and bolton is it doesn't go far enough we certainly agree with the general principle behind the policy disagreement about what the meaning of involuntary homelessness no the disagreement isn't with respect to involuntary homelessness that the disagreement is that the policy the pre injunction policy doesn't fully doesn't apply to three of the five enumerated laws it applies to six forty seven c and it applies to one sixty eight with respect to requiring offers of shelter be given before enforcement it does not apply to three seventy three seventy two or one sixty nine and so let's look at police code section one sixty nine it specifically requires that a shelter offer be made before enforcement. So why should that code section be enjoined? I apologize, Your Honor. I misspoke. What I meant to say is that the policy only applies to 169 and 647. But why should the enforcement of section 169 be enjoined? It specifically requires that prior to ordering a person to be removed from an encampment, an offer for housing or shelter has to be made. And I think that's where we go to the crux of the issue, which is you have to look at the factual record to fully understand why it was entirely appropriate and certainly was an abuse of discretion for the district court to issue the injunction in the fashion that it did. Because what the record clearly shows, and again, the record's largely undisputed, that the city used these laws not in the way that they were intended or, in fact, in the way that their policy describes they should be used, but use them as a pretext to criminalize homeless individuals simply because... I mean, that's very clear from the record. But what we're trying to pin down is whether or not you believe San Francisco can enforce these laws as written in this policy. Certainly. If San Francisco were to make bona fide, realistic offers of shelter, then they could enforce those laws because those individuals... Just to be clear, yes, they could enforce the pre-injunction police bulletin. Yes, because as written, what it requires is that only individuals who are not involuntarily homeless can be enforced against because the law, by its very language, requires that individuals be given offers of shelter. And being given an offer of shelter makes you not involuntarily homeless, correct? That's correct. But, of course, the offer of shelter has to be a realistic offer for shelter, a specific offer of shelter that provides them with access. Well, so what the record is clear is that... Could you... Throughout your brief, you keep saying it has to be a real voluntary offer. So how do you define a voluntary offer? So I think maybe... Does it have to be of someone's choosing? Does it have... What criteria would the court use in determining whether that was a voluntary offer of appropriate shelter? Given a real voluntary offer of appropriate shelter is what you say on page 33 of your brief. I think maybe a clearer way to frame it is to simply say that if an individual is offered a specific offer of shelter that's practically available to that individual, then that would provide that individual with access to shelter. What the record does show, though, the factual record, is that the city does not do that. Instead, what the city does is things like, you know, hey, are you interested in shelter without having an actual shelter offer in hand and then using that as a pretext to then enforce against that individual. And so the problem here is that the city has shown that despite the law requiring 
an offer for shelter that's that's real that's firm the city doesn't do that but then says oh you know we've done our duty and satisfy the law when that's clearly not the case i understand what you're saying about the record but in your brief you repeated to say individuals who have practical which i understand you're now saying is like readily available and voluntary access to shelter so are you now no longer requiring that voluntary condition so individuals are not compelled to use shelter right but uh certainly if they do have access to shelter and they decide not to use it that doesn't make them involuntarily homeless so so with respect to the voluntary i guess the way that i would put it is that for example if i was outside in the street and you know i was asked to move along i would not count as an involuntarily homeless person because i do have a place that i can go to and so simply because i voluntarily choose not to make use of that doesn't turn me into an involuntarily homeless individual however there are certainly it's undisputed that there are plenty of people out on the streets who are involuntarily homeless because they have no place else to go and the city can't convert those individuals into uh, people who are not involuntary homeless unless they provide those individuals with access to uh, practically available shelter, which, the, again, the record shows the city has not done as a practice. So the, the pre-enforcement, pre-injunction enforcement bulletin says if there is no shelter or navigation center bed available, officers may not issue a citation or seize the encampment slash tent. That, that satisfies the condition you're talking about. It, it does, but, again, keep in mind that that policy doesn't fully cover the, the laws that, this, that the city has used as tools to criminalize homelessness. So the, the other point, some of which I've already addressed, Your Honors, is that um, the city keeps talking about legal error, but, but the problem with, that the city faces in challenging the injunction is that it isn't a question of legal error. What the district court did was it looked at what the factual record was to see how the city use these specific laws in an unconstitutional manner in violation of the standards set forth in Martin and Johnson. And then the city, or the district court, excuse me, issued an injunction that essentially told the city, you are prohibited from continuing that conduct. That certainly was not an abuse of the district court's discretion. The district court carefully targeted the specific laws that she enjoined the city against enforcing. In fact, we had asked during the the preliminary injunction motion for additional laws that the city should be prohibited from enforcing. But the district court, after a thorough and careful consideration of the factual record, determined that there is not enough factual support for enjoining against enforcement of those additional laws. Can can I ask you to address your your friend's argument that this, you know, San Francisco is not Boise, it's not um, Grants Pass, and there are, and, and the homeless have a right to sleep somewhere in the city, and so therefore none of these laws should apply, none of the precedents should apply. I think, again, you've got to turn to the factual record, because what the factual record shows is despite the language of the laws, the city freely enforces uh, their laws against individuals at any time of day or night. Um, there's record, sites to the record um, in our um, answering brief on pages, I believe, uh, 49 and 50, where the city, uh, we have declarations of individuals saying that the city enforces its laws against individuals as late as uh, 1 a.m. and as early as 4 4 a.m. And so these laws are used by the city as a tool to uh, criminalize homelessness and keep involuntary homeless individuals from sitting, sleeping, or lying 
anywhere at any time of day or night they might be volunteer violating but if as written what's wrong with the argument that homeless have a right to sleep somewhere in the city they might not have i guess four hours in the day not a right to sleep somewhere in the city but they have a right to be somewhere in the city then that takes us out of the grants pass martin world and you know none of this should exist i mean none of this was presented in the first instance by the city during the primary injunction motion if if the city thinks that it has a basis to argue that there is some sort of time place manner limitation then the city is certainly free to go back to the district court and ask for a modification to an injunction i think that's appropriate venue for this because then the district court can fully consider whatever factual information both sides uh, might present to argue that there is or is not a, 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 a safe harbor, so to speak. But based on the factual record that has been developed to date, and that was before the district court for a permanent injunction, the, the factual record shows there that, in fact, there is nowhere in the city that's safe from the city. I, I, get, I get it. The factual record is different, but I'm just talking, talking about the laws. In, in Grants Pass and Martins, they, sure. we looked at the laws of, of the cities, and it said that no one can sleep anywhere in the city boundaries at any time, you know, but San Francisco's laws are different than those two cities, and so. But but the but the injunction isn't targeted towards simply addressing the the law as it's written. The injunction is targeted towards addressing San Francisco's actual application of those laws, which isn't congruent with the laws as written. And in fact, that's part of the reason why there's a problem with simply uh, having San Francisco say, hey, follow your laws, because they've already demonstrated that they have a different interpretation of what those laws are compared to the actual letter of the law itself. But if, if that's to your, oh, go ahead. I'm just wondering, if, if, they're, if they're violating the law, like, why isn't that just a defense to those individual prosecutions? Well, Your Honor, I think that uh, in addition to them not following the law, the, the problem is that, uh, you know, on an individual basis, you're asking uh, folks who, you know, frankly have no resources to try and defend themselves against um, their constitutional violations. There's no uh, basis to require... They're not entitled to counsel? They are entitled to counsel, Your Honor, at, at least in certain circumstances. Um, but th- But the point here is that uh, you know, these constitutional harms can be addressed pro- profe- uh, <laughs> in the first instance um, because we've established a factual record that San Francisco does engage in constitutional harms, and so it's entirely appropriate, certainly during the pendency of this litigation, to prohibit the city from continuing its practices, which, again, I don't think there's any dispute. In fact, the city doesn't even really dispute that the factual record shows that the city has engaged in widespread uh, uh, constitutional misconduct to telling the city, hey, hold off on that until this case gets resolved. And that's all the preliminary injunction is intended to do. Um, and we think that the district court did not abuse its discretion in, in issuing such an injunction. In fact, it, it's frankly very consistent with injunctions that have been issued in other cases, including in Grants Pass. Do you agree with your opposing counsel that any threat to enforce has to include a written or verbal threat to cite or arrest? Or do you think mere police presence is in a, of itself what conveys a threat to enforce an ordinance? Your Honor, I, I, I don't think that there is a bright line rule that it has to be a written or verbal threat. I do think, though, that the... Uh, the law you cited includes written and verbal threats. 
That's right. And so certainly written and verbal threats would suffice to constitute a threat. But, but the point that I wanted to make, Your Honor, is simply that uh, whether or not a threat exists is based upon a totality of the circumstances. And, and so, for example, whether or not mere police presence might be enough or might not be enough, that, again, depends on the facts, right? Uh, one officer um, standing there with, you know, 100 people, that's probably not a threat, you know, a hundred officers surrounding a single person. You haven't cited any authority. You haven't cited any authority for that. Your case law that you cited in support of your position on this issue, they all include written and verbal threats. So what would be the authority? And actually, let me just back up. Do you believe that this injunction enjoins mere um, police presence? Uh, uh, not, not as a bright line rule. It, it could, again, depending upon the totality of the circumstances. Um, I would refer, Your Honor, to the amici brief by uh, the Law Enforcement uh, Action Partnership, I believe it's called, uh, where they do lay out case law that, that describes the many circumstances in which uh, police presence has or has not been uh, determined to be a threat. And, and what I would also point out is that the city's post-injunction bulletin articulates a standard for what constitutes a threat that we're perfectly comfortable with. And so there is no issue in our minds, at least, with respect to how the city itself understands a threat to to mean and what constitutes a threat. I want to go back to um, an issue that we were talking about just a few minutes ago in terms of the what constitutes appropriate, realistic, available shelter. Because there seems to be... um, a gap that's created between Martin and Johnson on this issue of whether another location in the city that is a public space would be sufficient for somebody to go to converts them from being involuntarily homeless to I actually would prefer to use a voluntary homeless because there's so many double negatives when we're talking about the involuntary homeless but um, if, if the city were to designate a part of city or a park or something that was outdoor, was not a shelter, and much like I think they say in a different maybe encampment, that they're not going to be enforcing um, these ordinances. And wouldn't it be okay under our precedent, under Martin and Johnson, to be able to say, if we tell people that's a place you can go and we're not enforcing uh, the ordinances there, you are now, um, you are subject to enforcement here because you essentially become voluntarily homeless. That, that might be okay, Your Honor. And again, that's not the factual record here. I will note that, for example, in the case uh, Warren v. City of Chico, um, the use of uh, an airport tarmac, for example, was not deemed an adequate alternative location for shelter because it was exposed to elements. You know, being on a hot tarmac is, is not really adequate. Um, but, you know, so it, it really is a fact inquiry in terms of what is that alternative. And again, that's not before this court. The city has never pointed to a specific location where um, it has said this is a safe harbor, and the factual record supports that the exact opposite happens. The city enforces its laws against involuntary homeless individuals all across the city without regard to limiting to any particular area. In fact, the record also shows that the city will, in fact, um, after telling individuals to move under threat of enforcement, will then follow the individuals and again tell them to move. And so there is no factual record that supports a suggestion that there is any safe harbor anywhere in the city. And again, if the, if the city does create some sort of safe harbor location, then 
they can go back to the district court and ask for a modification, and we can debate the facts and have the district court decide that then. But that's not the issue here. On that point, um, can you clarify for me that the, and maybe I can just ask the city this, but they, they will be filing an amended answer in September. So in terms of the litigation that is ensuing in the district court, there's still a timeline for obviously uh, an amended answer um, and then whatever happens through a permanent injunction phase, right? So maybe talk to me a little bit about what the opportunities are for the city to raise the kinds of issues and defenses and develop a record much like what you're saying is required. Uh, Sure, Your Honor. So um, you're correct, Your Honor, that there is an amended answer that's that's to come. Um, That's based on an agreement between the parties regarding uh, their firm defenses that the city has pled, and so that they're going to amend to that. Um, I will say that the parties are all dis- also discussing extension to the discovery schedule. It'll likely be at least six months, could potentially be up to a year. Um, and of course, um, during the course of this litigation, uh, there will be opportunities for additional discovery to be done, as I just described. And the city can, based upon whatever discovery or other changes to their policy, for example, that they promulgate, um, they can ask the district court to modify the injunction given the change in circumstances. And so there's, frankly, ample opportunity during the course of this litigation for the district court to, to do that. Um, I, I see my time is up. I, I did have one, one or I have two. One last question. I have one last question. Separate from the waiver issue, do you agree that the district court should have conducted a Monell analysis? I think the district court did what it needed to do with respect to analysis because, again, the factual record is clear that the city engaged in a widespread practice of violating individuals' constitutional rights. And this wasn't simply a one-off situation. In fact, we have uh, declarations from ex-city employees that, that describe how this was a practice of the city to do so. And in the city's own declarations also described how they would routinely go to encampments without uh, knowing whether or not any beds were available. So, so is it your position that the district court did conduct a Monell analysis? That's yes, yes. I think that, I think okay. that in, in a situation like this where the factual record is absolutely clear with respect to the city's practices, I think the, the district court did what it needed to do to show uh, Monell liability, or certainly the, the likelihood that we would succeed on the merits of the Monell liability claim, which is all that's required. I have one more question, too. And we'll give you plenty of time to finish. Thank you, Your Honor. The points that you wanted. Uh, you, you keep talking about a factual safe harbor, but, you know, in Grants Pass and Martin, it's not about factual safe harbor. It was legal safe harbor. Here, San Francisco, there seems to be a legal safe harbor that the laws, as in force, allow the homeless to sleep somewhere. Well, so we, we should not even be doing an Eighth Amendment analysis here. Well, Your Honor, I, 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 I disagree with that because, again, we, we're not dealing with just that single uh, daytime sidewalk law. There are other laws, including other laws that the preliminary injunction enjoins. And what San Francisco does is they use this net of laws to capture involuntary homeless individuals and criminalize them simply because they have no choice but to sleep on the streets. And so the preliminary injunction was entirely appropriately issued to address these interlocking laws that San Francisco uses to criminalize homelessness, and there, it wasn't an abuse of the district court's discretion to simply say, San Francisco, you are no longer allowed to use these laws to proceed as you've done so. Okay. And, in, yeah. and in fact, the, the district court took a very measured view of that by not accepting all of the laws that we had asked to enjoin. 
And you wanted to make one last point. Yes, thank you, Your Honor. So um, one additional point I do want to bring up is with respect to the workability argument, which the city didn't spend a lot of time on, but we just want to make clear to the court what our position is on that, which is, again, there is no workability issue, and the city's own words confirm that. The city submitted for judicial notice, which we are not opposing, a police bulletin that came out after the preliminary injunction that set forth what the city could still do with respect to keeping the streets safe, keeping the streets clean. It it details a a number of things that can be done, including asking people to temporarily move to allow for street cleaning, allowing the city, uh, telling uh, city employees, you can, we can still enforce these other laws that require people, for example, to move when they're obstructing the sidewalk. And we don't contest any of that. We, frankly, don't really have an issue if the city follows the, the police bulletin that, that has issued post-injunction. The problem is, you know, the city has already shown that uh, they're not following the new policy, just like they didn't follow the old policy. Sorry, that raises one last question I have. The, they, they raised the timing of the end of the injunction, which seemed to track the formula from uh, Grants Pass, which was uh, stricken. So do you have a view on what the timing of the end of the, formula, uh, of the injunction should be? Sure. I mean, as a provision, I guess. Sure. As with any other preliminary injunction, the, the injunction can end um, when the case ends. Uh, what that additional provision does is it does give an escape hatch um, if uh, if the city, and again, this seems very unlikely, to be honest, but if the city does engage on a, on a, a process of building out thousands of additional beds that are needed and, and then goes back to the district court and says, look, you know, we've, we, there's housing for everybody now. We think that the injunction no longer applies. I think that provision sort of addresses that. But what we know is that in reality, it's not like we're five beds short or ten beds short. We're thousands of beds short. And so, $0.5 billion short, apparently. Well, well I, I, I'm not sure that that number is correct, but leaving that aside, we're certainly thousands of beds short, and so it seems unlikely that as a factual matter, that provision is going to have any relevance prior to the end of the litigation. Thank you. Thank you, Council. I think he went five minutes over. We'll give him five minutes. Thank you, Your Honors. I'd just like to make a few quick points. Uh, the court was asking before where within its injunction does the uh, district court take the view that the formula is all that matters. And I would point the court to first off on page 41 of the injunction order, uh, where the, at lines 25 through 27, 28, where the court says... Look at, let's look at page 36. The court very much quotes all of the relevant sections of... Martin and Johnson about involuntary homeless. But it goes on to say that it need not address the issue of whether under Martin and Johnson uh, a person is voluntarily homeless if they have been offered shelter while we're within this period when, according to the formula... But the other side concedes this point. They, They agree with you that the formula is not what dictates, the formula language is not what defines involuntary homeless. Instead, they agree with you that what defines what is involuntary homeless is a person who doesn't have an option, any other option of available shelter. So this, this argument about the fact that the formula language is what is, you know, there's lack of clarity about what involuntary homeless means because of this formula language seems, you know, to be 
really manufactured because it sounds like everybody agrees on this point we welcome that concession today we did not have that concession before we believe that in their briefs both in the district court and in and in this court the other side has not been anywhere near as as forthcoming as thankfully they were today there is a second if this all gets hashed out tomorrow we you could withdraw the motion for to modify the injunction pending appeal I'm sorry if what gets hashed out if this this agreement that's happening today happens tomorrow before the district court then we wouldn't have to address your motion to modify the preliminary injunction pending appeal well if the if the district court tomorrow were to I mean what's before the court is not is not a motion to modify the injunction it's a motion to enforce it's brought by the brought by the coalition and the individual plaintiffs so what if you reached a stipulation because it sounds like your opposing counsel is in agreement that someone who is offered a practically available shelter bed is not and declines it is not involuntarily homeless doesn't that then resolve your motion I think that that stipulation would have if there were such a stipulation it would have to be accepted by the district court and in effect adopted as a modification of the modification or clarification of the injunction much like what we sought back in January if you don't mind I think because we would rather the district court deal with it than us have to deal with that motion so maybe after tomorrow's hearing you could file supplemental notice of what's happened whether or not we still need to rule on that motion to modify the injunction pending appeal we'd be happy to do so your honor a second point which is related and there was questioning about this I think from from you judge co this question of voluntariness the other side has repeatedly said that an individual in order to be taken outside of the box of involuntarily homeless they have to have voluntary access to a shelter and that access to a shelter has to happen before there is an encampment resolution so there are two concepts here that the other side is arguing for and the district court appeared to have accepted and embraced because again at page 41 the district court says of the injunction order it is beyond dispute that homeless San Franciscans have no voluntary option of sleeping outdoors and as a practical matter cannot obtain shelter that actually is factually incorrect but again it shows that the district court seems to have adopted this nebulous concept of voluntariness which is not found in Martin it's not found in grants pass and part of the clarification that we ask this court to provide is that the offer of shelter can take place within the context of an encampment resolution and it need not be voluntary because it simply needs to be made can you respond to the so I take your opening argument to be that that Martin grants pass shouldn't even apply to San Francisco because the laws are different here and that homeless do have a place somewhere to sleep lie and sit but your opposing counsel said that as a factual matter that's not true because the way San Francisco enforces those laws that there is no such safe harbor do you have a response to that yes several things first off I agree with I agree with your honors question from earlier that if the if San Francisco enforced any of the laws in a manner which was contrary to the text of that law that would be a defense in an in an individual enforcement action against a citation or prosecution but secondly the record I believe doesn't demonstrate that San Francisco enforces the laws in it doesn't doesn't contain the 
supposed clear evidence that the other side alleges that it does for example the record doesn't distinguish between enforcement of enforcement against somebody who is sleeping versus enforcement against somebody who has a tent on the public right of way maybe a series of tents a large and a large encampment the latter would be prohibited by penal code six forty seven easy whereas sleeping alone based on the clear text of these laws just on their face is not so i presume that much of this will be asserted in the city's amended answer that is going to be filed here in less than a month and in the work that happens between now and the permanent injunction or the trial it may be but in our view your honor this is an appropriate issue for this court to address at this juncture because it's just a matter of what do the laws say on their face the laws provide places that individuals experiencing homelessness can sleep lawfully in san francisco for twenty out of the twenty four hours in the day we don't need we don't need a factual record as to what those laws say and what they mean over time if you want to wrap up please sure just as one final point i think that councils councils remarks on the question of what may caught what may or may not constitute a threat to enforce in other words it all develops it depends on the circumstances we really can't tell that just drives home the point that on that issue the preliminary injunction is excessively vague and it has the effect of in essence chilling the city from doing what it needs to do to promote and protect public health and safety if there is some unspoken ratio of the number of officers that may go out to an encampment resolution as compared to the number of residents of the resolution we don't know what that is there's no law saying that such a ratio exists and we asked this court to clarify that it doesn't lastly just in summary we believe that the preliminary injunction should be vacated in order to ensure that san francisco can promote and protect public health and safety and we asked this court to do so Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Thank you. Judge Bumate, can I ask, I'm sorry, oh, can I ask ahead. one question of plaintiff's counsel, not, not the city? Sure. Go of ahead. the coalition's counsel? Sure. Go ahead. Mr. Lee? And this, this is an issue that was uh, raised in the city's rebuttal, and that is, why does a shelter have to be practically available outside of an enforcement action in order for an individual who declines an offer of shelter in the context of an enforcement action to be voluntarily homeless? Uh, your honor if i understand your question correctly i guess i don't think that that's the position that we're taking um it's frankly irrelevant how the shelter how that access to shelter uh, was provided to the individual um if that individual does have access to shelter then they are not involuntarily homeless um the the issue is with the city's uh quote unquote offers in the context enforcement, which are not, does not actually um, provide individuals with access to practically available shelter. Instead, as the factual record shows, the city uh, essentially hand waves a shelter by, you know, uh, canvassing individuals, uh, asking for their needs. But what it doesn't do uh, prior to initiating enforcement action is to actually provide any individuals with shelter. In fact, the city's own employees admit that prior to uh, encampment operations, they don't even know if shelter is available. So how could the city possibly so, take the... Okay, I, can I ask you, I'm, I'm not asking a, a factual question, I'm asking a legal question to understand your position. Sure. So it sounds like currently 
your definition of practically available shelter bed includes outside of an enforcement action because you believe the city cannot otherwise give you a bona fide shelter offer in an enforcement action. Is well, that your position? Yes. I'm just trying to, if sure. we get to a stipulation here, I want to, I don't want it to blow up because there are all these additional nuances or contingencies that were not stated. Earlier you said practically available access to shelter was sufficient, but now I'm hearing no practically available has to be outside of an enforcement action. Well, and the reason because that we can't do it any other way. Right. And, right? and, and the, re, the reason why we say that is because what, what, what happens is, or let me put it a different way. If an individual is to be, is not involuntary homeless because they have access to shelter, the city can't then take that away, access away from that individual uh, outside the context of enforcement, because then it's, it's, it's meaningless. Effectively, what the city is doing is saying, hey, um, you know, as long as you, as long as you uh, are, obey our laws, including the law against sleeping on the streets, we'll make you an offer of shelter. But then as soon as this person moves, they, they, they do, you know, what Lucy does to Charlie Brown and pull the football away. That's just not right. And that's what we're saying is the city shouldn't be allowed to do. Sorry, if I could okay, follow up. Oh, go, go, go ahead. I, just a follow-up on that. I, I was troubled by footnote five in your answer, we have page 40, where you said, suggested that the city can't manage its shelters in a way to allow, uh, you know, empty space to then uh, uh, do an enforcement action. Why, why, there's, there's nothing I could see in the Eighth Amendment that requires us to manage their shelter, how the city manages its shelter. That's correct. The, the Eighth Amendment and Martin and Grant's past doesn't dictate to any city how they should manage their shelter system. Okay. But what the factual record shows is that the city um, sets aside uh, these beds, or at least claims to set aside beds, not in a genuine desire to provide shelter to individuals, but as a pretext to then initiate enforcement against everybody. And in fact, those beds don't actually exist for the most part, as the record shows, because they often go to encampments without even knowing if any shelter is available. And, and if you just look at the logic of it all, let's say they set aside 10 beds. Once those beds are filled, then the city seems to think, let's kick those 10 people out and let's start the enforcement process all over again. And, and that just doesn't seem right. Let me just yes. ask you one last question. So you're saying as long as there's a genuine offer of a shelter bed uh, um, made in the context of an enforcement action, a person who declines it can still be involuntarily homeless. Is that right? That's right. If, if, if okay. the offer for shelter is one that uh, does provide them with access to you know, practically available shelter, then they are no longer involuntarily homeless. And it doesn't matter that it was in the context of an enforcement action. Right, as long as it's, it genuinely it provides them access to shelter. Thank you, counsel, for a well-argued case on both sides. Uh, this case is submitted, and we will take a short recess.